Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Greek mythology was such a huge part of my upbringing. I knew my Apollo from my Aphrodite. I could recount the voyages of Odysseus and Jason. I could tell you about the labours of Heracles. And the funny thing is, while so much has changed in the things that we tell children, the way that we educate them and introduce them to the cultures of the world, Greek myths have endured. They are endlessly fascinating. My kids are obsessed with Greek myths. My daughter, age 12, has a sweet little owl necklace, which other people admire, but we know is our little secret between ourselves, which I probably shouldn't be telling everyone on this podcast, which of course the owl is the symbol of Athena. And so she loves to wear the symbol of the goddess Athena, that wise, all-knowing woman who steered the fate of so many heroes. And I like our little secret. The gods and goddesses of Olympus have been written about for thousands of years, and they still are being written about in best-selling books, like the ones by Natalie Haynes, who really, the description does her no favours because she's a polymath of the highest order. She is a comedian. She's very, very funny, actually very funny in real life. She's a classicist. She's an author. She's a fabulous human being. She's been on the podcast before. Many of her novels are inspired by the stories of the Greek world. And her most recent book is Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth. And I want to talk to her about myth, goddesses, and why we're still fascinated in them. And I thought we'd pick out one particular subset of goddesses from her book, and that's the Furies. Who were the Furies? What was their role in the Greek world? And why does Natalie think the Furies aren't such a bad idea today? Maybe we should still have Furies. Maybe we do. It's Natalie Haynes, everyone. We're talking about the Furies and the Greek pantheon. Enjoy. Natalie, it's so good to have you back on the show. It's lovely to be back. Oh I my goodness, you. since I last talked to you, you've become such a star of stage <laughs> and screen and bestsellers and things, so congratulations. Thanks. Very cool. Thank you. Um, you and I obviously love Greek mythology. Yes, we do. Why is it, but as it turns out, luckily for you, the great Those world people public. Do. Exactly. <laughs> and obviously, and, and you have been a big part of that, but transmitting it to new generation things, but... Why that? Why are these stories so enduring? Well, my theory, for what it's worth, is that it's because Greek mythology has human beings at its centre. So even when it focuses on gods like Hesiod's Theogony or whatever, they have a lot of very human characteristics. So essentially, the currency of Greek myth is the human life. Right? People are transformed or changed into, well, Ovid's metamorphoses, virtually every variant of animal and plant available. Gods behave and misbehave with relation to each other and to human beings. But essentially, it operates on a really kind of manageable, comprehensible scale. So the idea of, you know, some gigantic creature doing some gigantic thing at a level we can't possibly comprehend, as you might find in myth cycles like Norse mythology, for example, it's not really such a thing there. They go, oh, well, once upon a time we had the big chasm, chaos, um, and then there were the heavens and then there was it. And then we start getting people who have characters that we can kind of 
get hold of. And that, I think, is why it's so compelling. And the weird thing to me about Greek mythology is it feels like people have kept adding to it. There's no canonical there Greek is not. mythology. Yeah, That's there's what's... no original version yeah. of any myth because ancient Greece is 2,000 years long. Uh, right. So from the beginning of what we would call ancient Greece to the sort of later um, time of Greece during the Roman Empire is as far you know, from beginning to end as we are from Julius Caesar. And those stories are bubbling up across the Greek world, which is massive, across all that time. So when people ask me, yeah, but what's the real version? What's the original? It's like, but there's no such thing. You know, there's always moments where there are counter myths coming across because often local societies want to adopt a particular hero or heroine. You know, the version of the story where Helen goes to Egypt rather than to Troy is as old at least as Homer. You've just made my brain hurt. I mean, it's because we spend a lot of time thinking about the Trojan War because of the Iliad, but we spend very little time thinking about Euripides' play Helen, which literally begins with Helen saying, hello, I'm on the bank of the Nile. (laughs) Very (laughs) inconvenient, actually. It's really clear (laughs) that she's in Egypt. (laughs) Usually I spend my time sad that we don't have more classical texts that survive. Now, on this occasion, I'm actually sad that that one has survived. No, you're not. It's so good. It's so good. I love the Helen. I always thought it was, you know, what classicists describe as a problem play. Yeah, it is Um, a problem. And then Frank McGuinness translated it for... I think the Globe about 10 or 15 years ago. And it's that thing where you, you realise that in the hands of a, a master dramatist, as Frank McGuinness clearly is, you just go, oh, the problem was mine. It, it wasn't the yeah. place. The women, uh, it feels like a very fertile place to find stories and characters if you're interested in telling stories about women from the point of view of women, where women have agency, obviously yes. sometimes where they are victims, but do women play a more prominent part in Greek mythology, I guess? They do. They yeah. really do. And again, this is something that we've tended to sometimes not notice or sometimes disregard. So we have, I always make this point, but still, we have eight surviving tragedies about the Trojan War by Euripides. Seven of them have women as the title characters. Mm. Only one, the Orestes, has a man as the title character. So Euripides obviously knew that if you wanted to find the drama in a war, it wasn't necessarily on the battlefield. That's covered really well with epic. But it was elsewhere in the build-up to the war, in the aftermath of the war. And that's why we have, I can do this, hold on, the Andromache, the Electra, the Helen, the Hecabe, the Iphigenia in Alice, the Iphigenia among the Tyrians, and the Troades, Trojan women. Seven plays. All about women. Two about Iphigenia, even though she doesn't live to see much of the rest of the story. Well, here's the thing. At the end of Iphigenia and Aulis, uh, spoiler, it turns out she isn't sacrificed. She's substituted oh with a deer. Oh. Um, and so she survives in order to become a priestess who sacrifices people in Iphigenia among the Tarians. Wow. So, you know, sometimes tragic victim, other times makes a quick getaway, wields a big axe. Interesting. You're welcome. I tell you, that family, the sons of Peleus... I mean, it's a difficult time for us all. Yeah, difficult. Um, talk to me about the Furies. Who are the Furies? The Furies are three really quite ancient goddesses. So they are perhaps the children of Uranus. They, um, I'm sure you know this already, and I always feel bad uh, saying this to men, so sorry. But when Uranus is castrated, some of his semen falls into the sea and becomes Aphrodite, and some of his blood falls, and that becomes the Furies in our earlier sources. Sorry, men, it's over now. Um, but later sources like Aeschylus have them as the daughters of night, nooks, night. And they are revenge goddesses. So originally they start out as just sort of fairly nameless revenge creatures. And then gradually they develop personalities and impetus of their own. So there's usually three of them. They pursue 
relentlessly. If you commit a crime, particularly against a family member, a sort of unforgivable crime, as we might think of it, then they will pursue you until you can no longer cope, let's say. So their most celebrated victim is Orestes, who they pursue because he has murdered his mother, Clytemnestra. But they're interesting divine characters then, aren't they? Because they're an embodiment of things that we feel like we are hunted by our guilt. Yeah, we really are. So they're both independent entities and also it's very easy to read them as a psychological embodiment. And a lot of Greek myth works like this, which I think is another reason it's so compelling. So for us, for example, desire is an internal thing. If I were to walk into a crowded room and see a very beautiful person and fall for them, we would assume that was on me, you know, that I'd walked into the room desperate to fall for them. We might, if we were a bit passive aggressive, assume it was on them. You're so beautiful, I couldn't help but fall for you. But what we wouldn't do, probably, is assume it was a third party, Aphrodite, maybe Eros. Walking alongside you, floating behind you. Yeah, Yeah. just imposing desire on you, whether you want it or not. For the Greeks, that's a really plausible way of describing, because they don't have a language of psychology yet that allows you to describe what happens when you know it would be better for you if you went home to your loyal partner, but you instead decided to smooch a stranger. They don't have words for that. So they know- Aphrodite afflicts you and there you go, you've got it covered. So if you think that love could be an externally applied force, then revenge suddenly seems a bit okay. more, or vengeance or a desire for justice suddenly seems a bit more real in that sense. We do have, I think, as a, as a society and as individuals, a sense that things should be fair. You know, it's a really early plea from a child. It's not fair. And so when a terrible thing is done by somebody, I think we do tend to think there should be a consequence for that, that they should pay a price. The Fury's price is always, I think, pretty well the extreme end of what we would consider to be reasonable. So Orestes, as they pursue him, they are intending to drive him to suicide. I was about to say, they torment you yes. to the point of wanting to end it all, to yeah, throw yourself so off a cliff. This is in the third play of um, the Oresteia, Aeschylus's Oresteia, where the goddess Athene, who is about to hear the sort of charge against Orestes, the Furies have pursued him all over the Greek world. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're hearing all about the Furies. More coming up. 
let's remind everybody why are they pursuing Orestes? Because he, he killed his mother. Di- because he, he difficult decision. Killed Clytemnestra. Yeah. yeah. When you can link this back, this is good. We can link it to Iphigenia as well. So mm-hmm. Agamemnon. Yes. Leader of the Greeks. Yes. Breaker of horses. So anyway, whatever. So he leads the fleet of the Troy. Yes, they're becalmed at Aulis before the uh, fleet can leave. And his priest, a man named Calchas, tells him that uh, they must sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia if they're to get a fair wind to sail to Troy. So he duly does that. Although, as we've said in the Euripides version, uh, at the last minute, Adir is swapped in for Iphigenia by the goddess herself, which always makes me wonder just how corrupt Calchas was. Because if he was so right that this was the sacrifice that had to be made, how come you know a miracle essentially has to occur in order to save her life. I'm always curious about it. But in the main, well, whatever the But the main, main take version, out is he, he kills, kills his daughter, his daughter and his when he comes back Nestra, from Troy, she kills him. She kills him. Yes. So Orestes has this terrible decision to make. Yeah, avenge his father and kill his mother or allow his father's ghost to go unsatisfied and let his mother thrive, having committed her crime. And the choice he makes, along with his sister Electra, is to kill their mother. But that, of course, means they are guilty of a blood crime. And are pursued by the Furies. And are pursued by the Furies. And Orestes is pursued all the way to Athens. And Athene will stand as his sort of juror, it appears, or perhaps judge. And then she decides in the Aeschylus version to step back slightly and essentially become more like a judge. So she asks leading questions, an interrogating judge, but she allows the jury to be made up of ordinary men of Athens. So Orestes is essentially judged by his peers. And the Furies are the prosecution, basically. It's a courtroom drama, this third play in the (laughs) trilogy. And they say, you know, we want to demand satisfaction for Clytemnestra because, you know, he killed his mother and that's unacceptable. And this is a really elemental law in, I was going to say ancient societies, but generally I think we all pretty well go with don't kill your parents. Uh, Our parents, parents, most of all. (laughs) I can, I am definitely propagating Really in favour. Yeah, Yeah, really in favour of this law. It's not culturally specific. (laughs) and, And that's another point about the Furies is that they perhaps represent a time of sort of laws that we would consider to be simply true. We will always think that murder is wrong, I think, probably, and murdering parents is sort of doubly wrong. There are more culturally specific things where we might say, you know, these things have changed over time. Murder a slave? No problem. I mean, there's a really interesting case in um, Plato's Euthyphro, which really illustrates how cultures change, because Euthyphro is prosecuting his father for having murdered a slave. And his family are appalled this kid. that woke, he would prosecute his generation. father for... Yeah, exactly. Woke to us, I think Euthyphro looks incredibly, you know, reasonable. Yeah. He thinks all human life is the same. But to Socrates and to Euthyphro's family, he looks like a terrible, disloyal son. So a perfect example of how our values have changed over time. So Furies-wise, it's a little bit like our use of King Arthur. They, novelists can just bring him in to serve a particular purpose. Do the Furies appear elsewhere? Obviously so famous in the Orestes story. Yeah, they do appear elsewhere. Um, and sometimes the crimes they have to pursue somebody for don't seem that bad to us. So the story that we get in the Iliad, when Phoenix, or Phoenix if you prefer, comes to talk to Achilles, and he explains that the reason he's childless is because his father, whose name is Amintor, had been having an affair, I mean, this implies consent, which isn't necessarily present, um, with a younger woman, the word in Greek is palarchis, which we usually translate to mean concubine, but again, that implies consent, which, you know, is not necessarily present. And Phoenix's mother pleads with him on bended knee. The whole thing is so 
desperate for analysis by Freud, to have sex with his father's new sexual partner because she feels dishonoured by this. And she thinks if this nameless woman has sex with her son, he'll no longer fancy her husband. Wow. <laughs> it's like um, paging Dr. Freud. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and the Furies don't in that instance drive Phoenix, who's cursed by his father. His father calls down the Furies upon him. But it's not for death, it's for childlessness. And that's why Phoenix ch- remains childless in this story particularly. So you can request the Furies... Step up. To A, step up, but B, to what you like them to drive it doesn't. The it seems to. to have to be quite an elemental thing. It's usually death, but certainly in the case of Phoenix, it isn't. Telemachus says at the beginning of the Odyssey, when he's asked why he doesn't just chuck his mother out when he's sick of the suitors being in his home. And he says, because she'd be able to call down the Furies on me. Right. So, of course, so Telemachus, there's Fury opportunities there, aren't there? Well, there's a sort of Fury aversion is what happens there. Because the Furies exist, at least as far as Telemachus is concerned, he is prevented from committing a crime against his mother. I mean, at the very least, it would be antisocial behaviour to render her homeless because he doesn't like the young man who would like to marry her. So... The fact that the Furies are in his worldview stops him from stepping out of line. So sometimes they might seem to behave really terrifyingly, as with Orestes, but here they're sort of maintaining social order. I have to admit, I kind of like the Furies. I think there's something to be said for a sense of sort of society-bound value that means that shame stops us from doing terrible things. I feel like we've lived through a time when public servants have felt really capable of saying something wholly untrue or wholly contradictory of a previous sentiment. And then when asked, you know, to justify the change, have said, I never said that, you know, that wasn't me. And I would quite like a sense that, you know, as a society, we say that's actually unacceptable. You should be ashamed of yourself. But they also feel very relatable in that we all tell each other the reason that murderers and people that commit appalling crimes but go unpunished in this life we kind of believe that they are haunted to the end of their days. That's You'd have we, to hope, wouldn't yeah, you? We, we, yeah. be- we believe that, don't we? Because we, yeah. we kind of have to believe that. Yes, because the alternative is awful, yeah. that so they just thrive and Killing and don't a, care. a lovely old lady who lives next door and stealing all her money, but getting away with it. Well, yeah. actually, you're not going to enjoy that money because you're going to be absolutely haunted by the horror of what you've done. I mean, that is surely as well why Hamlet is such an extraordinary play, right? And why Macbeth is such an extraordinary play. This right. sense right. that if you do something terrible or if you've witnessed something unavenged, you can't rest easy, you know, that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth both struggle with guilt. You know, Hamlet knows that if he doesn't avenge his father, just like Orestes, that his father's ghost is going to trouble him. He has to act yeah. eventually. And Banquo's um, ghost is a fury. Yeah, of it? course. Just telling me. I think so. I'm, yeah. I'm here to make your life absolutely miserable. You might wear that crown on your head, but I'm here to make your life miserable. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a gender switch, obviously, but I don't think that particularly troubles me. Okay, um, good, good. In this instance, the Furies are really interesting in terms of being female because Apollo really despises them, at least in He's Aesopolis. a bit of a misogynist, hasn't He's he? He's such a misogynist. But I one of the things Apollo. he hates them for is being like horrible ancient children, he calls them. Hmm. Oh, because they go all the way back to the beginning. Because they go all the way back. So they're, they're, they're old they're, gods. They're, they're old gods. Yeah, but there's something kind of childlike about them, perhaps because their moral outlook is so simplistic. You know, that as adults, we would say, well, sometimes it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, it doesn't take very much for us to think there might be times when we don't think it's the worst thing you could do to kill a parent. You know, if you had an abusive parent, if you were trying to protect your younger sibling from that abusive parent, we might think 
yeah, okay, well, it's still morally wrong to commit murder, but maybe I would consider that manslaughter or maybe I would consider that a variant of self-defense. I would want some nuance. Yeah. I wouldn't want to just say anybody who kills yeah. any parent is definitely evil. Well, but they were here um, at the Earth's beginning. But the Furies the, are much more simplistic. They're yeah. like, no, that's definitely wrong. We they came out of primeval die. soup. So they are a little bit yes. unsophisticated in that respect, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. But maybe that's why I find them appealing. I quite like moral simplicity. Yeah. You know, I'm always here with my kind of, oh, yes, but what if? philosophy type arguments and every now and then you think oh no it's quite good actually to have people who just see things in this totally yeah you did the wrong thing no I'm not stopping <laughs> kind of and way did, yeah. and did they have different roles and which one do you like the best uh, I'm not sure I have a favourite one in terms of you know who does which because they all pretty well do the same thing but my favourite representations of them are always vase paintings. There is something glorious about Furies on vase paintings because we have our literary sources are all about them being terrifying. They're disgusting, according to Pythia, the priestess of Apollo in the Eumenides, for example. They've got horrible matted hair. Their eyes are disgusting and sort of dripping. And it's like, all right, well, we've all had hay fever. Don't be mean. Um, But when you see them on vase paintings, they look weirdly young and oddly incredibly cool. They wear these sort of lace-up boots that have a slightly kind of Doc Martin vibe and they wear sort of tunic skirts, so down to sort of knee length or maybe a bit below. They have snakes, not like Gorgons have snakes growing out of their heads, but sort of around them coiling up an arm or, you know, going through their hair. And they always look exhausted because they're always in pursuit. So when they're not in pursuit, when they're resting either in the underworld or because their quarry is now caught, they're always like leaning on each other, exhausted. (laughs) One's got her head in the other one's lap. They just look so sisterly. I find them adorable. And like Athena with her outfit, you always know the Furies do. The Furies are always presented like that. I mean, pretty well, yeah. The Pythia says at the beginning of the Eumenides, she says, oh, they look a bit like Gorgons, but actually they don't look like Gorgons. She corrects herself. She says they look a bit like the creatures that steal food from Phineas, harpies, in other words. And then she says, oh no, they don't look like that. So she's trying to find things to compare them to, but she struggles. So I think they're just themselves. Brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to us all about them. It was my absolute pleasure. And tell us what the book's called. The book is called Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.